Well, last week, guys, whoo-wee, last week was hard. I uh, was talking to the college life group uh, about the text, and I said, have you ever read Genesis 34? They were like, no, we didn't know that was in there. Uh, it was a brutal story, right? The violence and the, the rape of Dinah. It was a, a horrific story. Um, Jacob was passive and the brothers murdered and pillaged. It was a, it was a hard word. And we had to ask some really tough questions about the good news, but we were reminded that there is no sin so vile that God cannot save, and there is no wound so deep that God could not heal. And not surprisingly, after that mess in Shechem, Jacob's family had to move. They kind of caused a stink, so they had to move on. And today in Genesis 37, we are going to read about the story continued. And it's going to take a turn, moving from just Jacob to his son, Joseph. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now we're going to read about his son, Joseph. So if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 1. Let's read. Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children because he was the son of his old age, and he had made him a robe with long sleeves. But when the brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Once Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream that I dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field, and suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, and then your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And the brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to have dominion over us? So they hated him even more because of his dreams and his words. He then had another dream, and he told it to his brothers, like an idiot, he keeps telling them, saying, look, I have had another dream. The sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what kind of dream is this that you have had? Shall we indeed come, I and your mother and your brothers, and bow to the ground before you? So his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, a couple years ago, a couple friends of ours invited us to go to a dinner theater in Kansas City. And I was super excited being the musical lover that I am. And the show was going to be Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Cloak. Has anybody seen it? Yes, yes, I see those three hands. Awesome. Uh, yeah, and so I was so excited because I knew that it was a really good show and it was really well-reviewed and I was excited. And Tommy, who is completely oblivious to the musical subculture of this country, uh, was a he was kind of ambivalent about the whole thing, but the prospect of a pretty legit buffet got him on board. So we're like, fine, we'll go. <laughs> so we drive into Kansas City and we find the theater and you spend the first like hour and a half just eating, like just bellying up to this buffet and just eating, eating, eating. And right when you're full to the bursting, um, the lights start to dim. So you know the show's about to begin, right? And you get all excited and, and the, the curtain rises and oh my goodness, the opening scenes of that musical are astounding. Like the costumes are vibrant and the music is just captivating and the lights and oh, it's just, it's wow, right? And so as the first song comes to an end, Tommy leans over to me with dismay in his voice and goes, is this a musical? <laughs> and then, it was going to be a long two and a half hours for him. Yeah, it was. 
But the story of Joseph is pretty incredible. I mean, it is fantastic musical material, am I right? There are dreams, and there's drama, and there's violence, and there's despair, and redemption, and forgiveness. And the musical version of the biblical story tries to capture all of this rich humanity. And as I'm listening to the songs, I can't help but hear the songs and the lyrics of the musical through the ears of a theologian, of a preacher. Eight years of school will kind of mess you up like that. And in the very beginning of the song, the narrator sings this song uh, about dreams and dreamers, those people who dare to imagine something beyond what their eyes can see, right? And she says, all I need is an hour or two to tell you the tale of a dreamer like you. We all dream a lot. Some are lucky, some are not. But if you think it, want it, dream it, then it's real. You are what you feel. And right off the bat, you're given this impression that this whole Joseph saga is about a young man and his ambitious dreams. And in the next scene, Joseph's come out in his new fancy coat, like showing the favor that his father has shown on him. And in classical musical fashion, he looks out longingly into the distance, singing about his dreams. He goes, any dream will do. And you get the impression that the content of the dream isn't all that important. What matters is the dream, the big something beyond this provincial life, right? And again, you get the sense that Joseph is just this wide-eyed dreamer, dreaming dreams of greatness, something beyond his small farming life, right? And it's a narrative that we're all familiar with, whether we realize it or not. The wide-eyed dreamer, the idealized image of a person whose dreams are just bigger than this place, bigger than this town, right? Whatever town I have lived in, regardless of the size, people I just got to get out of this place, right? That's the dream. Who cares what town it is? They all say that. From a town of a million in Italy where we live to a town of 14,000 in Mountain Home. And the, the idea is I've got to get other. I'm made for something bigger. I must go on. And if I believe in my dreams, I will achieve it, right? And my dad and mom were here a, few, uh, a couple months ago. And my dad's really into biking. So he bought JoJo his very first bicycle. And, of course, the child picks out the girliest of girly bikes, okay? The Disney Princess Deluxe model has a basket, has jewels, has the tassels, the whole bit. And every single Disney princess is plastered to that bike in some fashion, okay? And if you look, you can't see this picture because it's too close, and she's just so cute, so I didn't zoom in. Uh, on the, the chain cover, it says, has pictures of all the princesses, and it says, fearless dreamer, right? And pretty much every Disney movie communicates that narrative in one way or the other. This small life is restrictive. I was made for something more, right, than this provincial life. <laughs> Belle, Belle. And I have big dreams, right? And if I work hard enough like Tiana or if the right prince rolls around like Snow White or if I'm kind enough like Rapunzel or if I'm sweet enough or if I'm smart enough, my dream will become a reality. And this dreamer narrative is rooted in humanism. It's a philosophy of optimism that suggests that humankind, out of our sheer goodness and our power and our fortitude, we can not only dream big, but we can make those dreams happen. But let me be clear. That is not the narrative of the Joseph story. The musical gets it wrong. Joseph is not some wide-eyed dreamer who longingly gazes over his family's flocks, longing for something more. He is a young man who, through the providence of God, finds himself dreaming the dreams of God. And that's a totally different ballgame. 
Because God's dreams, God's dream through the entire book of Genesis thus far, as we've been journeying together and through the whole Bible, is really about salvation, saving creation, to restore it, to redeem it, to call creation and humankind into God's good future, right? God is beckoning us into his good future. And his chosen method, questionable though it may be, is through Abraham and his family. Do you remember? God's dream is that through the children of Abraham, he will make for himself a people that will be a light to all the nations, to all creation, to all people, that all people might come to know and love God the way God knows and loves them. That is the big dream of God. And this dream is not Joseph's dream. It's God's dream. And it's gift. It's 100% gift. Not because he's just a really cool kid. It's gift. And so when Joseph begins to have these dreams, these dreams that, let's be honest, seem to be a little self-promoting, particularly to the jealous, insecure, and apparently bloodthirsty brothers, right? They won't accept that this dream is of God because to them, they're just the dreams of some arrogant young brother spoiled and favored by daddy, right? And they don't have ears to hear the story that God is telling, that through Joseph, God's plan is to bring about salvation for not only the family of Jacob, but ultimately salvation for the world through Jacob's descendant, Jesus. So they don't have hearts to receive the dream for what it is, the dream of God's very self expressed through this young man. Now, dreams can be scary. And I'm not talking about like dreams where your like oven comes alive and chases your children. I mean, like dreams... Not from personal experience at all around that one, right? Uh, Dreams can be scary because the deepest imaginings of the heart, the what ifs, the what could be's, they can be scary because they threaten the status quo, right? The what could be is always a threat to the what currently is. Because those who benefit from the status quo, Those who are living well in the what currently is are the ones most deeply threatened by dreams and dreamers. And so for Joseph's brothers, already riled up by their brother's new coat and the status it gave Joseph over them, when they heard about the dreams, it rankled them deeply, deep in their souls, because for them, the status quo was working. They were in charge, managing the flocks, building wealth, Settled quite nicely in the land, thank you very much. And so when these dreams come to Joseph, the very dreams of God for Jacob's family, the brothers are resistant, violently resistant, because they are plagued by fear and resentment and rage. Because the dreams come in as this disruptive power, breaking into the status quo, upsetting the good thing that they got going, which sets the stage for what comes next for the dreamer of God's dreams. Verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flocks near Shechem. Hmm, Been there. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flocks at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he answered, here I am. And so he said to them, go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and they went to Shechem and a man found him wandering in the fields. The man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, oh, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and followed them at Dothan. They saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. 
they said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him in one to the, into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him, that he might come and rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with the sleeves that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. Well, that escalated rather quickly. From a bitter sibling rivalry to a hatred so deep they were willing to chuck their brother in a pit and leave him for dead. Yeah, no, we already know these brothers were on like a downward slope morally after the devastation they wrought in Shechem last week. But now they are literally willing to abandon their brother in the wilderness and then casually sit down for a picnic lunch while their brother cries for help a few feet away. That's cold. How far the brothers have fallen. How far they have fallen for God's good intention for their family. So in their state of mind, their preoccupation with their own position and their own authority and their own wealth and their own future, the brothers found the dream of God through Joseph to be too much, too disruptive. The status quo is preferable. So preferable, in fact, that they will resort to violence to keep it. But the violence, while it certainly seems directed at Joseph, isn't really violence against a person. It's violence against the dream of God. Because they are utterly resistant to God's future. Because it's not to be trusted. Joseph pays a price for their disobedient fear. You know, we haven't even considered what poor Joseph is going through at this point, right? The dreamer of God's dreams. Man, that's not a job I'd like to have. Because as he tumbled down into the pit, what must have rolled through his mind like a shoe in a dryer, right? Kerthud, kerthud, kerthud. Is this, a is this a prank? Is this brother rivalry gone a little too far? Surely they'll come to their senses and maybe they'll see that God's at work. That even though it's shocking and it's strange that God is calling me forward to lead this family to God's good future for us. Joseph is hoping they get some kind of revelation, right? But no revelation would come. The status quo is too comfortable. The dream, too threatening. Verse 25, remember they're sitting down for their picnic lunch? And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, carrying gum, balm, and resin, and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him up out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where can I turn? Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in blood. They had the long robe with its sleeves taken to their father, and they said, This is what we found. See now whether it is your son's robe or not. And he recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. A wild animal has devoured him. Oh, Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters sought to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. 
And he said, No, I shall go down to Shoal with my son mourning. Thus his father bewailed him. Meanwhile, the Midians had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. What seemed to start as an angry, jealous sibling prank ends horribly wrong. With a brother sold into slavery, a great lie fabricated, a father just unmoored by grief. And I imagine Joseph saying as they pulled him out of the pit, like, finally, guys, it's dark down there. Oh, my. And then he realizes they won't meet his eye. And he sees the camel and he knows it's over. It is all over. So where's the dream now? Is it on the ground? In that dusty pit shuffled under rocks and pebbles to be forgotten? Is the dream in shackles stumbling next to a camel on a sandy path to Egypt? Is it finally the end of the road for God's dream and the promise that is wrapped within it? You know, the promise has endured for decades now through a lot of stuff. Through barrenness, remember all the barren women, Sarai, Rebecca? Through violence, through lies, through deception, through rebellion and greed and disobedience and cold-blooded murder, the promise has endured. But is this now the end? Because the dreamer of God's dreams is in chains and the promise tucked within it is withered and dry. There's a podcast that I like to listen to. It's called Invisibilia. And it explores like all the hidden things that shape human behavior. And I listened to an episode recently. It was called The Future Self. And it was about this high school principal. And he saw in his students this, like, sense of despair. Like, they had these dreams of what they wanted to do, who they wanted to be. But their whole families were stuck in these cycles of poverty. And so these children were basically, they just felt really hopeless, right? They felt trapped by their circumstances, and they couldn't overcome some of those mental barriers, right? And so the principal's like, we've got to break the cycle. And he kind of turns to an unusual path to do that. He turns to hypnotism, of all things. I know, it sounds crazy, right? But through hypnotism, he is able to help these students imagine their futures, imagine their dream, and dream these big dreams, right? And so by imagining themselves fulfilling these dreams, these students are empowered to, like, strive and to work and towards these dreams, and they find, like, purpose and direction. It's really beautiful, and some of these students experience great success. Like this one kid, he really wants to join the Marines, but there's a thousand reasons why that's just not going to happen. But after going through this process of hypnotism and working hard, he achieves it, right? And other kids get into college who never thought they could get into college. And everyone's like, wow, this is like a magic wand of education. Let's hypnotize them all, right? But then something goes wrong, horrifyingly wrong. Two students who had participated in this practice, they hit these major roadblocks on the path to fulfilling their dreams. One student, she just could not get the SAT score she needed. And so she got denied entry to the college of her dreams. And another student who was planning to go to school with uh, her long-term boyfriend, he dumps her, and she gets rejected by her would-be roommate. And so these two students had these dreams of this one future self they had imagined. But all of a sudden, that dream that they had so vividly imagined for themselves was no longer viable. There was no way forward. There was no future. And they fell into utter despair. And two of these students actually ended their lives. But you see, their their despair wasn't just about 
a college or a test score or a roommate or a boyfriend. It wasn't about a career path or anything like that. The despair for these students was rooted in this idea that there was only one possible future, right? One dream expressed in one way. There was one way to fulfill the big dream. And when that ended, when that path was no longer viable, they had no imagination for another way, for an alternative path, for another dream, and thus despair. To them, the dream was, the dream was dead. There was no moving forward. And Joseph's brothers, Jacob's ten eldest sons, they had one interpretation of God's dream, of God's promise. And that included their leadership, their wealth, their way right here, right now in this land. And so when God's dream for them and for humankind pushed back against their interpretation of the promise, against their comfortable status quo, they responded with a violent pushback. There is no dream. There is only this. Move along, Joe. Because they had no imagination for what God wanted to do through their family for the world. We've been there. When the path we thought was the way forward is no longer viable, and we wonder, where's the dream? And you have to wonder, poor Joe, what he must have thought as he trudged through the hot sand to Egypt, heavy chains on his wrists and ankles. Um, God, in the dream, I was actually the one people were bowing to, and not to be particular, but I seem to be doing all the bowing these days. Is the dream dead? We can't blame him for asking that question, can we? Because Joseph's life is like a really horrible game of shoots and ladders. Anybody play that with their kids? Oh, it's brutal. It's brutal. Like you think it's going so well, and then your kid hits the giant shoot, and down they go, and oh, the chaos. And that's what Jacob, or that's what Joseph's life was like, you know? He would climb the ladder. He had his father's favor, and whoop, thrown into a pit, left for dead. He rises to the top of his master's home in Egypt in Potiphar. Oh, lied about by his crazy wife thrown in jail. Rises to the top of the prison in Egypt. Interprets people's dreams. It's great. He's going to get out. Oh, all his friends forget him and they leave him to rot. It's shoots and ladders. It's dark for Joseph. And that is where the text is supposed to end today. The dreamer of God's dreams behind bars. Let's pray, right? Hmm. Well, back in the 1950s, uh, when the U.S. was really flourishing in, like, post-World War II era economy, there was a poet named Langston Hughes, and he began to write about his experience and the experience of his people. You see, Langston was African-American, and unlike his white counterparts who were really experiencing some of the American dream, you know, getting the job, getting the house, getting that future, um, he saw himself and his black peers floundering. And in his mind's eye, he felt like his dream was withering. That dream of equality, the dream of financial stability, the dream of freedom. And so he wrote this poem called Harlem, sometimes called a dream deferred. It says, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust over and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? I am not a poet. And I usually don't give a hoot about poetry because I don't understand it. But when I hear those words, even I, in my poetry ignorance, can hear the hurt 
and the question, the encroaching despair as he asked the question, same as Joseph, as he sat in the pit, as he stumbled in Egypt, as he was thrown into a prison unjustly and left for dead, is the dream dead? And it's the same question that we ask too. When life takes a hairpin turn and we can no longer imagine a good future. It's the same question that we ask. Is the dream of God dead? Is the dream of God's promise, God's good intention for creation of salvation and redemption and reconciliation for humankind, is it dead? Is God's dream of a good future, of a world set right, healed and made new, is it dead? So this weekend... As I, too, was following the demonstrations in Charlottesville, as race relations in the last couple years in our country is a mess, and as protesters and counter-protesters do battle in the street, and we cannot find a way, it would seem, to live with respect and peace and equality, and when all around us seems to scream despair, chaos, brokenness, and war, whether it's in Virginia or North Korea, everywhere in between. And I find myself asking this question, is the dream of God dead? The dream of God for a healed and whole world. Are we so far gone in our selfishness and our own agendas and our own violent commitment to the status quo that the dream of God for salvation and restoration and redemption and healing is withered on the vine? In our own lives, is the path to God's future, so off the rails, so not what we expected, so not the path we would have chosen, that like the brothers, we push back in anger or resign ourselves in despair to the status quo. Is the dream of God dead? But there is good news. There is always, always good news. There was good news for Joseph, and there is good news for us. And the good news is this. Pits cannot kill God's dream for us, no matter how dark or how deep. Shackles cannot kill God's dream for us, no matter how tight. Prison cells cannot kill God's dreams, no matter how lonely or forgotten. And waiting, even seemingly interminable waiting, cannot kill God's dream for us. Our sin, our selfishness, our violent commitment to the self-serving status quo cannot kill God's dream for us. Because God's dream is a stubborn old mule that doesn't know when to quit. God's dream is that tenacious weed that keeps coming back. God's dream is a deep crack in the darkness that given time will spread and burst open as God's dream bursts into creation, flooding it with light. God's dream for us, for his beloved creation, is resilient. It endures all hardship. It is persistent, and it is eternal. And so, even when we are deep in the pit or bound in chains or forgotten and alone, we keep dreaming. We keep dreaming. But not any old dream will do. We dream the dreams of God. The dream of God that says, I have a good future for you and for this world. I will bring about my salvation in your life. I will release my redemptive, restorative action in the world through my people, the church. 
And so as we wait, we put to death our own dreams, our own ego-based dreams, those dreams that are more about us and our own agenda, about our own egos than they are about God's work in the world. We put to death those princess bike dreams that say, oh, by my own strength and my own willpower and creativity, my stick I can achieve. And rather, we throw ourselves fully into dreaming the dreams of God. We must put to death those ego-based princess bike dreams. It is a mercy because there are bigger, better, deeper, richer dreams to dream. The dream of God himself. And so as a mom, that's my prayer for my children. They don't buy into some humanistic, lie-saturated dream that says, you can do whatever you set your mind to do. I pray that they will dream the dreams of God, planted in their hearts through faithful discipleship, and they will join, Jack and Joe will join God's dream-inspired mission in the world of living out the kingdom of God. That's my dream for my babies. But that's also my prayer for you, my beloved that you and I don't buy into ego-based dreams that say, for us to be God's faithful church, we have to have this building or that program or those kind of people. But rather, I pray that as your pastors and your leadership team and every single person in this pew who begin to dream the dreams of God for Mountain Home, to live out the kingdom of God in this town for these people at this moment, at this time. The dream of God is not dead. The empty grave declares it to be so. The dream of God is a stubborn old mule that doesn't know when to quit. And if we will live into our call to be the people of God, we too can dream the dreams of God and bring them to fruition in our community. May it be so. Lord, this morning we lay claim to that identity. We are your children. And we have no reason to live in fear because you are good. Your promise is trustworthy. Your dream is a stubborn old mule. And it won't let us go. It will not let creation go. You have good intentions. You have a good future for us and for all of creation. Lord, would you, by the power of your spirit, give us the the imagination to dream the dreams of God to dream your dreams for our families, for our church, for our community. Lord, we don't want to have anything to do with ego-based dreams, princess bike dreams that say, I can do it, my big self. But Lord, we want to dream the dreams of you, of your heart, trusting in your spirit to empower us to do what you have called us to do, both in our homes, in our church, in our community. Lord, you are faithful, and you will hear our prayer. Hear us now. We ask it now in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Would you stand to receive the benediction? Beloved, Christ Church, may you courageously dream the dreams of God, trusting the Spirit to empower you to live into God's good future trusting that God is at work. Go in action and go in peace. Amen. You are dismissed.